Good morning again and wonderful, wonderful blessing to be able to bring this, um, this, uh, this study again. We had a, uh, had a wonderful time last time when I introduced this, this issue surrounding the Bible and Bible versions and especially the reasoning why we hold to the authorised version of the King James Bible. And uh, there were many things that were said and I have to admit to you that um, I was a little bit too quick to say certain things without providing an explanation behind them and I noticed that as I re-read my, uh, re-listened to my own, uh, my own message. Sometimes I find myself getting convicted by my own sermon and, um, and anyway there was a couple of things that I said in there that I'm probably not going to be able to have a chance to go through today to bring understanding but they will come up in a um in another sermon as we go on and namely i mentioned about the septuagint which was a greek meant to be a greek translation a document prior to the time of christ of the hebrew text and the other thing i mentioned was with regards to bible colleges and how they're not really found in the scriptures and i'll explain that in more detail later on but not uh, not today there are many people today who are very comfortless they don't have, they look around them and they, they, nothing in the world seems to make any sense. Um, there is confusion everywhere they turn and as they look at that confusion, sadly, they actually uh, don't find tremendous amount of hope. They look at the people who are meant to be the people of the book, that's what we used to be called, the people of the book, and as they look at the people of the book, they also don't see a tremendous amount of hope. Even the people of the book seem to be incredibly confused. They don't seem to have a foundation of truth that they can actually hold on to and say, this is the truth. Everything that is in here is true. Every word is pure. It is perfect. It is in his place, just as God had promised. Now, in your newsletters, you'll see continually, this is the third week at least, that I have given quotes within there that demonstrate the belief that we have, that we have the very perfect Word of God here, is not a novel idea. It's not new at all. Matter of fact, it is the old idea, it's the old belief that has been there for hundreds of years. It's only been in the last, in the 20th century particularly, that this has been turned about. And today we're going to be having a look at the reason why that that may have occurred. We are going to be looking today a little bit about the persona of truth. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus himself, our Lord. We're going to be looking at him and we're going to be thinking about whether our position that we have on the word of God is actually in line with his character. Is he a man of his word or is he not? Is he a man of his word or is he not? If he said that heaven and earth will pass away but my words shall not pass away, what limitations are we implying on that idea, on that notion. How are we judging Christ? Do we know Christ, especially with respect to his word? We're going to be having a look at that and seeing that the position that we have is not an unreasonable one at all. Matter of fact, it's more in line with the character of the Lord Jesus Christ than any other idea that can be out there. The text that we have in the first point this morning is the manifestation of truth. It's there in John chapter 18. We're only going to be looking at verse 37. And Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for the things that we find within the scriptures concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there be any doubt in one of those words, dear Lord, how could we have confidence in any of them? How could we have confidence that Jesus said what he said? Well, we know, dear Lord, that your word is truth. It is lined with the man who is known as the truth. He is the way, the truth and the life. And I ask and pray, dear Lord, be with us this morning. Open our hearts and minds and that we may have understanding and be with me, Lord, please, as I preach. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we have in this text a testimony of Jesus Christ as he stands before the governor, Pilate, in Jerusalem. He was brought there by the very people that he came to save. He was brought there by those that he loved and he was betrayed by them. He was betrayed by them. He was scourged by them, to, uh, by the Romans, but through, through the Jews. And then he was placed on a cross. For their sakes, he was killed. And everything with respect to Christ is actually found, the promises respecting com- the coming of Christ, the Messiah, was found within their own holy scriptures, within their Bibles. Everything about the timing of his coming, the very day that he would be presenting himself as a king to the Jews in Jerusalem is notified within the Old Testament. It's there. And they should have been held to account. They should have known the truth that Jesus had come specifically for them. Matter of fact, he stands there on the Mount of Olives and he cries out to Jerusalem saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And then he says, this day is this house left unto you desolate desolate and desolations indeed came upon Jerusalem within about 30 40 years afterward when Titus Vespasian came in and completely leveled the city Josephus records within his own historical writings that there was literally not one stone left upon another of all the ancient buildings there especially with regards to the temple of our Lord nothing was there it was as if the temple didn't even exist that's his recording and he was there in that time when these things occurred The Old Testament, Jacob himself, even from the book of Genesis, spoke about the coming of Christ. Spoke of the coming of Christ. Genesis 49.10, he says this respecting Judah. He's giving a prophecy of Judah. And he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh is Christ. Shiloh is the Messiah. Shiloh is the one who was promised to come, but not until the scepter is departed from Judah. What does that mean? The scepter refers to the legal governance that Judah has of being able to exact just judgment. In other words, Judah had the right to admit capital punishment on those who had broken the law severe enough that would retain that, that, that effort. And in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey had actually come in and taken over Jerusalem. He had taken the city, the Roman general Pompey, he had taken the city and in taking the city, the Romans were now in charge. But interestingly, the Romans always allowed the Jews to retain their own system of laws. They allowed them to retain their own ways of working and they would have governors in their kings that would lead. Herod the king died roughly around about 4 BC and roughly around about that time the Roman procurator by the name of Caponius was installed at about 6 AD 
And the legal power of the Sanhedrin, this is the Jewish uh, legal body, the Jewish justice department, if you will, they were suddenly restricted from adjudicating capital crimes. Suddenly, the scepter had departed from Judah. What was the year? Roughly around 6 AD. What do we know about that? Well, we know that Christ would have been about 10 years of age at that time. The cry at that time, it's interesting because it's recorded in the Babylonian Talmud that the cry of the people were running into the streets saying, woe unto us, woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah and Shiloh had not yet come. Oh, I she was up my spine thinking about that. That cry and yet at that time there was a young boy growing up in Nazareth. I find that incredible. That for the first time in history, that legal right was taken away from the Jews just as Jacob had prophesied thousands of years earlier, the scepter had departed from Judah and Christ was already there. He was already there. Now, at the age of about 33 years, he stands before another representative of Rome, being brought there by his own people for permission to put him to death. Do you notice that? The people had to go to the Romans to get to permission to put Christ to death. They couldn't exercise that justice on their own. Why? Because the scepter had departed from Judah. That legal right had removed, been removed from them. And now he was there and he testifies to the very reason that he was born. He says, Thou sayest, I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. To this end was I born. To what end? To the end that he would be the king. That end. And then he says, but for this cause came I also into the world, and that is that he should bear the witness to the truth. Now, the pagan world has no concept of truth. The pagan world never had a concept of truth. Hence, we have Pilate's question, what is truth? The pagan world didn't have a foundation for truth because they had no foundation to stand upon. There has to be an absolute. And when the pagan world doesn't have an absolute, it doesn't have a foundation for an absolute. We have that and the knowledge that God is and that he also gave us his word. His word is the absolute. His word is the truth. Today, we are living now in a post-postmodern age. What do I mean by post-postmodern? Well, the postmodern age was the age that discovered that there was no truth. There was no truth. There is no truth. The post-postmodern age, everybody has their own. <laughs> it's quite mad, actually, when you think about it. I have my own truth. No, you don't have truth. You only have opinions. You don't have truth. But they've changed the definition of the word. The post-postmodern age is everybody has their own personal absolute. Everything is relative. Well, if everything is relative, then that statement is relative. Anyway, we can go on. Pilate understands this same reality. And that's why he says unto him, what is truth? When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews. This is the reality. The pagan world had never had truth before and it still doesn't have truth today. Now, as the Christians have even removed from themselves the very foundation of truth, where are the pagans going to go to find truth? Nowhere. The Christians can't even go anywhere to find truth. And this is one of the reasons why we are so lax in our ability to know what is right or what is wrong, what is true and what is false. We've permitted this because we have literally undermined our own selves. We've literally cut off the branch that we are standing on, which is the very word of God, the person of Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And there is no lie that is of the truth. 
Who now is a representative for the people of the world? There is none. Who is ours? The Lord Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus. And I hear this with Christians all the time. I believe in Jesus. And I follow Jesus. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I just follow Jesus. Yeah, but what do you mean by you just follow Jesus? Well, you know, the, the feeling, the, you know, the, you know, I follow Jesus. Yeah, but what do you mean by you? I mean, what's your absolute? You know, well, whatever he says to me, that's what I do. Well, how do you know what he says to you? Well, it somehow comes in, it pops into my head. Well, how do you know that that's Christ? I feel it. Well, how do you know that your feelings are true? Because they feel good. Well, so do alcoholics feel good. So do people who take drugs feel good. Does that mean that what they're feeling is good, is true? Do your feelings determine the truth? My feelings don't determine the truth. There's a lot of things that feel good that aren't good. I can guarantee you. And we've all experienced it. No, no. When we get to the specifics with regards to the truth, it's found in the Word of God. But today we have such tremendous confusion, it's understandable that people have shifted away. And they're now looking for their own truth. They're looking for their own feelings. If we're going to be claiming somehow that a multiple array of Bible versions, all conflicting one with another, all saying something different, all adding, removing, changing words at will, and yet claim that this is an ordained representation of Jesus, then either we've distorted completely the view of Christ or we need to explain how such confusion represents him. Does that make sense? How does such confusion actually represent the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Dark Ages was a historic time when the Roman Catholic Church locked up the Bible into a foreign language, into the Latin language. And there was no longer spoken that language among the people. The people didn't speak that language anymore. For over a thousand years, the Latin language had the Word of God and the Roman Catholics locked it up. When they preached, you come to church on a Sunday and they would preach, it would be in Latin. When they read the Bible, it would be in Latin and then they would tell you what it actually says. You didn't have the truth in your hands. You had to rely on the priest behind the pulpit. And ultimately, he has to rely on the Pope when he speaks ex cathedra. In other words, when he speaks outside of the, you know, the cathedrals? Well, the Pope goes in there and he ever speaks out of one of those cathedrals, he's supposed to be speaking absolute truth. It is infallible. Right? And it's part of also the, the magisterium, the setup that they have. The people were thereby subjugated. They were a subjugated people and essentially enslaved when uh, under the Roman Catholic system. And this is where you get such a, so many of the complaints today with regards to religion is an oppression and this and that and the other. Yes, it was an oppression for the thousand years plus that the Roman Catholic Church had, had, had locked up the very word of God. But light sprang into the world. Light sprang into the world for a short time where suddenly the word of God was translated into the languages of the people and true renaissance flourished. People became awakened. Their minds were clear and all the wonderful works of art that we had and all those incredible things began to spring out into existence and we have such beautiful paintings and the mathematics and the sciences. All of that just exploded during that same particular time that the word of God was given into the hands of the people. Is that coincidence? You truly think that that's coincidence? And what I find really interesting, and this is just a side note, 
right at the time, we had beautiful portrayals. I mean, portraits of people. And, and I've been, went, went, to, uh, went to one of the museums in, um, in, in Holland. I can't remember the name of it, the oh, main one in, in Amsterdam. My goodness, the paintings. Um, you'd think they were photographs. Absolutely incredible imagery. And what a wonderful blessing. And you, you see that spring to life because there was something that affected the minds of these artists to be able to have them portray these things with such grandeur. It was incredible, absolutely incredible. And then you notice all of a sudden, at the same time that we had to have all these new translations and doubt became in the Word of God, we got Picasso. You know? And he's just the beginning, you know? So, <laughs> anyway, I thought that was funny. Today, however, we've entered into a new dark age. We've entered into another dark age where, again, the Word of God is hidden, this time in a sea of obscurity. This time, rather than being locked up in a language, which on the back end it sort of still is, in the Greek and the Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic, um, Rather than being locked up, it's now available for everybody, but now it is so obscure because of 450 plus different New Testament translations. Which one is the Word of God? And we suffered with such, such retrogression as this. We suffered with such, how do we find the truth now? Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. You know, in doing this, in having the Bible hidden in a sea of obscurity, what, what's happened by default now is that because you now long, no, can no longer find the truth in a given book, like in your lap, I've got it here, now you have to rely again on the person behind the pulpit. Now you have to rely again on somebody like me to tell you what the truth is, okay? That, that's, that's vanity in every single way. Is that how God had ordained things? Did he not give us his truth? Well, you've got that in John 17. This is the, the true prayer of the Lord. The Lord's prayer is found here. Verse 14. Have a look at what he says, verse 14 to 20. The Lord Jesus praying to the Father, he says, I have given them thy word, and the world have hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Then I like this one, verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Well, that comes down to you and I, beloved. That's you and I. We are the ones who have believed on them through the Word of God. Jesus is praying to the Father and he says that, his, that his, he has given the disciples his Word, verse 14. And the world hates them as a result. But there it is. It's there. Further, he prays that God would sanctify them through the truth. Thy Word is truth, verse 17. The only way we can grow into the image of Christ to be changed, sanctified, is through the truth. And the word is truth. But notice verse 20. 
That the prayer was not just for the disciples, but also for those who would come after, and that's you and I. But Pilate, while beholding the very manifestation of truth before him, doubts its existence. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? How different are we? How different are Christians today who use the King James Bible, who have the very word of truth in their very hand, and yet they still doubt its existence? We've been told we have the truth. The word of God has been handed down, but somehow we seem to think that God has lost his words in translation. You know, that's how weak our God is. Out of a pool of over a million words, he couldn't find 12,500 of them to give us his word, perfect and pure. In 1956, there was a book published. It's this one here. It's called The King James Version Defended. It was by... Dr. Edward F. Hills. And in this, and this is, he was, he was considered as the most brilliant scholar since the time of Dean John Burgon, who actually wrote a book, this book, called The Revision Revised. And this is written originally in 1883. This is a 2005 copy. In 1883, two years after the revision of the Word of God, when the Word of God was so corrupted, something that you might not be aware of, he wrote this treatise on it. And we're going to be going through a little bit of that later and talking about some of the quotes that he had in there. But one of the things that Edward F. Hills notes within this, and the first major part of it, it's almost the first half, he doesn't go into all the manuscript evidence. He doesn't do that. The first half of this book is dealing with the character of God the very character of the Lord. And he's bringing out the reality that if the character of the Lord is this way, an idea that somehow we don't have the word of God anymore is antithetical to him. He writes and he says this in his introduction. He says, If the doctrine of the divine inspiration of the Old and New Testament scriptures is a true doctrine, the doctrine of providential preservation of the scriptures must also be a true doctrine. It must be that down through the centuries, God has exercised a special providential control over the copying of the scriptures and the preservation and the use of those copies so that trustworthy representatives of the original text have been available to God's people in every age. Make sense? It's logical. He goes on, he says, God must have done this For if he gave the scriptures to his church by inspiration as the perfect and final revelation of his will, then it is obvious that he would not allow this revelation to disappear or undergo any alteration of its fundamental character. Why? Because the character of his word represents the character of God himself. Is God a man of his word? Or is he not? Is he the author of confusion? Or is he not? He is not the author of confusion. He is not the author of confusion. That is not his work, that's the devil's work. If God had inspired his work perfectly, it stands to reason that he has preserved it perfectly. There's a term that I came up with a number of years ago and it might help you and it might be worth noting down. Simply this, inspiration assumes preservation. Inspiration assumes preservation. And the second part to that is this. Preservation presumes possession. Preservation presumes possession. If God had inspired his word at the beginning, word for word, perfect, 
then it presumes, it assumes that he must have preserved it. Or else why would he have inspired it at the beginning, only for it to be lost? Remember, the word of God is not the ink on a page. That's not what we're talking about. The words are the very words, the words that carry meaning and understanding, the words that carry thought. Those are the words. And he has promised if he inspired them from the beginning, it stands to reason that he will preserve them. So inspiration assumes preservation and preservation presumes possession. What's the point of preserving them only to bury them under the earth like the Mormons do or the Seventh-day... I don't know who does it. The ones with the gold tablets, apparently they buried the word of God. I had them in my house many years ago. And they were going, see, there's a picture. There's, oh, that's right, Joseph Smith burying the gold tablets of the bible i got they he, he buried the bible what's the point of that you know what a, what a useless oh but we got the proper ones now okay, well i'll tell you what how can i know to compare them well, maybe dig those ones up so we can compare that it's true anyway preservation presumes possession the witness of truth john eighteen thirty seven. again he says that i should bear witness unto the truth everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice one of the most striking features of the Bible is how far God goes to permit himself to be tested. I don't know if you've ever recognised this. In the Bible, he speaks about geographical, geographical way markers. He speaks about historical individuals. He speaks of cities. He speaks of nations. He speaks of languages. He speaks of all this incredible geography. He speaks of direction, north, south, east, west... He speaks of all these things that you might be able to simply go back and check whether or not those things are true. Now compare that to Joseph Smith's ramblings that speaks about all these different cities. None of them exist historically. We can't find a single one. There's not a foundation of one of them. And yet you go to Israel and you're like walking through a living museum. It is at so many other cities that were in ruins. So many of the tells, the, the cities that are built on top of cities, on top of cities, on top of cities. So many they are, we were walking across the gates of Solomon and that was about 3,000 years old and there was not a single person there to say, oh, don't, don't walk that way, you know. They didn't even have little barricades to say, don't walk over them. We're walking over everything, it was great fun, you know. Felt like a little kid. Yet these ruins were thousands of years old. It was incredible to see, incredible to see. God has left way markers that we may test him check him whether or not he's true or he's not true there was a time when in in the in the early 1800s where they used to refer to christians as honorable hittites they referred to them as hittites why well because the bible speaks about the hittite nation and it was a great nation but there was no such archaeology um, evidence that actually overturned anything with regards to the hittite nation until some smart guy decided to put a shovel in the ground and they discovered that the Hittite nation was actually an incredibly vast nation. It did exist. But in the early 1800s, they didn't believe it did exist. So they used to mock Christians by calling them Hittites. You get the honourable Hittite badge. You know? Well, now who's laughing? The reality is the Hittite nation was a great nation. The Bible itself also was a miraculous book. It wasn't a work of one man, but of many it wasn't a work that was tended to in one lifetime, but in many lifetimes. It wasn't even originally written in one language, but several. Nor was it even written on one place. The Bible is a volume of 66 books, penned by over 40 different penmen, 
with backgrounds as diverse as kings and doctors to slaves and ploughmen. On top of that, it was written in three different original languages. It was written over a period of 1,600 years and it was written on three different continents and yet it comes together to form one book, perfectly cohesive without contradiction. Oh, they try and pull out some contradictions, but I've checked them and they're not really contradictions at all. There's answers to almost all of them. I've only, there's only a couple of them that I found that I couldn't find an answer to. But other than that, for a volume that's 790,000 words long, you'd figure that there'd be one or two or ten or a hundred. You'd figure that if there's 40 different penmen that wrote it, then there should be contradiction. Let me ask you a question, just a quick one. You might be able to work this one out for yourself. But if I asked you guys to all go home today and write a story, just one page, right? And then next week we all come together and we put them all together and we read the stories. How much do you think that they're going to be so cohesive without contradiction? How much are we going to... Th- do you think that they're going to be exactly the same story pretty much or cohesive one after the other? Do you think? What's the likelihood, you reckon, out of, out of 100? Zero, yeah? Now, what if, what if I told you exactly what to write, word for word, and I told Mia exactly what to write, word for word, and I told Elise exactly what to write, word for word. What if I told you all exactly what to write, word for word, even as a man? Would you expect the story to be cohesive and with very limited contradiction? If I told you exactly what to write word for word and you followed exactly what I said, I should be able to come back and we should have one account. You know, one story that goes from the beginning to the end without too much of a problem. That's not that difficult, is it? This is how the Lord had worked over his word. This is how God had superintended over the Bible. It is not one book written in one man's lifetime. It is the word of God. It's that simple. Jesus came just as he was written of hundreds of years earlier. He came in just the manner his coming was written of, almost 300 specific prophecies perfectly fulfilled. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth and he did so perfectly. We are, now, are we now to say with regards to his words that they're a complete jumble? Should we not be expecting them to testify of the exact character of Christ? I would expect them to testify of his character. Are not his words a testament to who he is? His words should be, and he should be a man of his word. What you think of his words is the true reflection of what you think of him. You might think that that's a little bit harsh. It ain't. What you think of his words is actually a true reflection of what you really think of him. Do you think he has the power to preserve his words? Do you think he has the power to, uh, to keep his promises? Does he lie? Can man get in the way somehow? Is he troubled by language? Is language a difficulty for him? He just can't, oh, you know, I can do this and I can do that and do that, but language, oh, I'm a bit stuck on, you know. I know that I gave all the languages a babble, but no, I don't know, English language, that's complicated, the phrases, the spelling, a little bit off. You know, I haven't learned English yet. In 1881 was published a volume called the Revised Version of the Bible. It was supposed to be an enhancement of the King James Bible with some supposed errors corrected and then republished. 
There were rules governing the method of production and those rules were imposed upon the translators of the revision committee by the Southern House of Convocation. One of those rules is as follows. This is the rule, key rule. They were not to make any alterations to the Greek text underlying the King James Bible. How many alterations were they allowed to make of the Greek text underlying the King James Bible? They were, they were to make none. And according to Dean John Berg on the, revise, you know, the, the, the revision revised that book that I showed you, he wrote this, quote, The fundamental resolutions adopted by the Convocation of Canterbury on the 3rd and 5th of May 1870, five of them in number, contain no authorisation whatever for making changes in the Greek text. They have reference only to the work of revising the authorised version. It was recorded by the translators themselves in 18, uh, of the 1881 revision uh, that they fully agreed with this ruling, stating this, quote, We may be satisfied with the attempt to correct plain and clear errors, but there it is our duty to stop. Did you get that? So it was quoted by and referenced to by John Bergon. It was accepted by the revisers of the revision committee. Okay? Now that makes sense. Think about it just for a second. That makes sense. We'll come back to this in a minute. But if the King James Bible has errors in it, we're told this. The King James Bible has errors in it. In order for them to tell you that it has errors in it, you would presume that they know what the errors are. Yeah? It's got an error. Well, how do you know it's an error? Because I know what the truth is. So you would assume that everywhere the King James Bible has errors, they would know what the errors are and they would be able to provide that correction. Difficult task? Not a difficult task. I don't think it's a difficult task. I think it's a simple task. They should know where the errors are in order to correct it. We're going to come back to this a little bit later. Well, not only did they not hold to this duty, but they secretly created a completely new Greek text Never before seen. Never before seen. So many were the resulting alterations in the English Bible that a comment by the learned Bishop Wordsworth of Lincoln said this. He said, I fear we must say in candour that in the revised version we meet in every page with changes which seem almost to be made for the sake of change. Changes that just seem to be made for the sake of change. You and I have been completely told in this modern day that the changes of the Bible are insignificant, that they don't affect any doctrines, and that even though we've got such a multitude of false witnesses, that it's divisive to even make a fuss about it. Beloved, if I speak about this issue in churches, I can guarantee you if there's... The issue, the issue that, I get, that people get upset with me about is not abortion. It's not homosexuality. It's not climate change. It's not none of these things. They don't worry about any of that sort of stuff. The one issue that everybody gets their back up is whether or not the Word of God is true. Can you believe that? Even in churches. Even in churches. That is the greatest controversy in Christianity today. The Word of God. Can you believe that? Because everybody wants their own God. Most people are treating the Bible as an idol. They want to pick and choose which one is their favourite. And that's not how we choose God, is it? Or just, just this Jesus is the Jesus that we prefer, is it? No, he is who he is. <laughs> it's, just, it's not difficult. Theologians have given unbelievers just cause to reject the Bible because of all their manipulations. And I think Satan has his hand all over it. 
According to this Bishop Wordsworth, he wondered how the Church of England would accept such a version of the Bible so needlessly altered. Two pages later in this particular address, he says this, The question arises whether the Church of England sanctioned a revision of her authorised version under the express condition, which she most wisely imposed, that no changes should be made in it except what were absolutely necessary could consistently accept a version in which 36,000 changes have been made, not a 50th of which can be shown to be needed or even desirable. This is by Bishop Wordsworth. This is right at the time. Now, beloved, that's an incredible testimony to a man who was right there at the time when the authorised version of the Bible, this one here, was being replaced by a so-called revision. 36,000 changes. 36,000 changes. You know how many words are in the New Testament? About 180,000 words. 36,000 changes equals 20%. 20% of the New Testament was changed by these individuals. Now, that's 140-odd years ago. We've had hundreds of different translations since then, each one of them requiring their own protective copyright in order to be considered a derivative work. In other words, each one of them has to have significant changes to be protected by copyright law. Oh, but it's all still the same, they say. No, it's not, beloved. Come on. It's not still the same. The changes have been made. Does this represent the truth of Christ? Does this perfectly represent the character of Christ? Does it not stand to reason that there has to be one true version, just as Christ is true? That stands to reason. Anything else does not reflect the nature of Christ. Strong's Concordance. Just in case you're wondering, I bought some props. Strong's Concordance is this one here. And I brought them that you can come and have a look for yourself and check them, right? On the pages of Strong's Concordance, as you go through this, the Strong's Concordance tells you how many words are actually in the King James Bible. All right. King James words... It says there, the KJV contains 790, 915,000 words. Okay? That's how many words are in the King James Bible. The NIV one, here, I open that one up, and that tells me that as well. Here it is. Now, this is the revised version of the NIV, not the original one. This one's added another 1,200 words, right? But this is the revised version of it. North American edition of the NIV contains 727,145 words. 790,000, 727,000. The original NIV had 726,000 words. Now, that's a bit of a shortcoming. That's total of, because I wrote it down here, 64,809 words shorter the NIV. 64,809 words. Now, beloved, I write about 5,000 words for every single sermon that I preach, roughly around about 5,000 words. For me to get to that number, you would ha- that's 13 sermons shorter is the NIV. 13 sermons shorter. Still the same? Still the same? Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. 
We're going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, all right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, just one verse in each. And you've got to see it for yourself. Matthew 24, verse 35. It says there simply this. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Is that simple enough? Go to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Very next book. Mark chapter 13. And have a look there in verse 31. Verse 31. Recorded there for us is this. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Does that seem clear also? Just in case you missed it, let's turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. It's the next book. And verse 33. Give you a guess what it says there. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. We have a triplicate here, very rare within the Bible, that you have the exact same words actually spoken in, in each of those synoptic Gospels. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Interestingly, that same text is recorded in all three verses in the NIV. But the NIV has had 64,000 words pass away. Pass away. When I was looking for a, for, a, for a true church, I didn't know where we fit. So I went to a Presbyterian church. I thought that they were straight down the line. And they were using the NIV and I'd already come to the conclusion that I came to because I'd already done by that stage probably about seven years worth of study on the issue of Bible versions. And the pastor, the preacher at the front, held up his NIV and he said this, he said, people won't believe the word of God until they start deleting the words that they disagree with. And he's holding up the NIV. And I told my daughter, I said to my daughter, grab that NIV that's in the back of the pulpit, on the back of the seat there. She grabbed it. This is my daughter, Saskia. I said, turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 37. So she's turning there and I turned there. And she's looking at the NIV and she's got to Acts chapter 8 and goes down to verse 37. And she's 36 and 38, 35, 36, 35, 36, 38. 35, 36, 30. There is no verse 37. Just disappeared. He prophesied truth while holding up error. 64,000 words different. Did Jesus just, did he lie? Did he lie? Did he not have the power to preserve his words? Has heaven and earth passed away? Has it passed away? Because they seem to have passed away in every single modern translation. They say, oh, but it's there in the margin. No, no, that doesn't cut it. That's not, that's creating doubt. That's Satan whispering, hath God said. That's what that is. We also are 
beloved witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. We are witnesses. You and I are witnesses. Can I ask you, do you think that your own view of the Bible also reflects your true view of Christ? Where you stand on the Word of God, does that actually reflect your true view of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you think that it is your true view of Christ that is what is manifested through you in your day-to-day witness of Him? I think so. Our true view of the Lord manifests within our life as a witness of Him. We reflect Christ. Why do you think atheists want to remain atheists? Because many of them have met Christians. They have. They've met the Christians, you know. And these Christians don't like to look like true Christ ones. They're just Christians. They are more than happy to sit in the church listening to sermonettes delivered only to Christianettes. This is what they want to do. And as long as you give me a 15-minute sermonette and give me one and a half hours of music, I'm more than happy. That'll be, give me enough pump to get through to the next week. This is the reality of Christians today. This is the reason why atheists turn away from Christ because they're the witness of these individuals. They do not witness Christ. They don't see in them anything different than what they're seeing in the world. Why? Because of where they stand on the word of God. The Bible says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What a blessing. The people of truth. This gets wrapped up very quickly. The people of truth. John chapter 18, 37. He says, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. That's a fascinating statement made by the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes a similar statement in John chapter 10. Turn back there with me. John chapter 10. Or forward because you were already in Luke. So go forward to John chapter 10. The Pharisees had asked him if he be the Christ. And this is his response in verse 25. The similar text to what we just read with regards to everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Jesus answered in verse 25, John 10 verse 25. He answered them, I told you and you believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Everyone who is of the truth hears his voice. His sheep hear his voice. His sheep, therefore, and they who are of the truth, and they that are not of the truth, his sheep are those who are of the truth, and those who are not of the truth are not his sheep. There should be in you all a love for the truth, a love to know what the truth is. If you indeed do love Jesus, if you're one of his sheep, there should be that desire. Those, however, who do not love the truth, they are in a desperate state, beloved. They are in a desperate state. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10 says, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they may be saved. Having not a love for the truth, you find yourself observing vanities, lying vanities, as Job had told us. They they, they, they observe lying vanities and this is one of the problems for them and they perish as a result. That text goes on and says, For this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, 
that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There's clearly a distinction in the people groups here. One who loved the truth and looked for it, and they won't rest until they find it. Don't settle on stupidity, beloved. Don't settle on those things that are inconsistent with that which is true. Don't settle on that. Hear those things, fine. You want to hear them, hear them. But if they're inconsistent, recognize the inconsistency. If you've got a love for the truth, recognize the inconsistency and don't rest until you find it. And once you find it, don't move. Just stay there. It's a nice place to be. Very nice place to be. That's where we receive our comfort and our joy. Jesus spoke about this with regards to finding the truth within the scriptures. And our submission needs to be to the scriptures first and foremost to be able to understand the truth. We see in Luke chapter 24 when the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ was walking with the disciples. You remember that? He appears to them. They're all sad. They're all upset. And he approaches them. He says, why are you sad? And they told him of all the things concerning this Jesus, who they thought was a man mighty indeed. And we indeed thought that he would be the one that would restore Israel. But lo, he'd been crucified on a cross. And strangely, he'd also not been found three days later. And they were perplexed and they were walking. And he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They did the same thing to Apollo. Apollo was a great man, a great preacher, a great orator, but he didn't understand the the, the baptism of Christ. He'd only been given to the baptism of John. So they took him and they expounded unto him the word of God more perfectly. You see, the word of God was there at that time. It was there at the time that Jesus was holding them accountable to know the word of God. And yet, not the originals, the originals have been long gone. So these are obviously copies of copies that have come down. Errors in the King James Version, we need to be considering this with the logic. And I mentioned this already before, and I just touched on it. If the King James Bible contains errors in it, then it is assumed that those errors are known. And if they understand where those errors are, they simply need to fix them. Fix them. Now, if they believe that there are errors in the Bible and they know what those errors are and they just fix those errors, could we all then naturally agree that we have a perfect Bible? Could we not? Does that not sound reasonable? In other words, a Bible that is without error? Is that... You you understand what I'm saying, yeah? I'm, I'm trying to find more heads nodding. Don't nod if you don't agree, but but I'm just trying to make sure i got the logic. If we know that there are errors in the Bible, we naturally assume that we know that they are errors because we know what their corrections are. So we fix the errors. We fix all the errors in the Bible. Now can we say that we have a Bible without error? Logically, yes. Yeah? I mean, that that's, that's, to me is reasonable. So what is with 400 years of ongoing different translations or roughly the last 100 years? Why have we got 450 plus versions of the Bible if they were supposed to have just fixed the errors and be done with it? And we can all agree that we've got a perfect Bible. Well, here's the next question for you to consider. Was the intent to fix the errors? Beloved, the intent was not to fix the errors. 
The intent is Satan's continual intent to create doubt in the Word of God. A story that's in your newsletter today actually talks about an individual who more dangerous for him to have a Bible smuggled into North Korea than it was to smuggle in guns or, or drugs or anything else. The Bible was the most dangerous thing that actually comes against the rulings of, ruling authorities in North Korea. And if you were caught with a Bible smuggled in, you'd be killed. You'd be killed. The fair reckoning here is that the Word of God is meant to be true and meant to be kept. If the desire was truly to fix the errors in it, they could have done it by now. I get errors in punctuation with my sermon, right? I get told that there's errors. So I'll go through and I'll fix them. Now, even with my own limited ability, you'd figure that once I fix them, they're fixed. I've got no more errors. Would you figure that after 200 years of this conversation, they would have fixed the Bible by now, these, these scholars? The intent is not to fix the Word of God. The Bible teaches that witnesses agree, testify to the truth of a matter. This is your manuscript evidence or a little bit of it. There are some 5,900 manuscript witnesses in Greek. Most of these are just portions of the New Testament, not complete texts. And they were obviously portions because the more people read them, the more they fell apart. That was the nature of these, of these books. And they span history from 60 AD, which could even be considered a potential original. I think it's P66 is the, is the text. From that text all the way through to roughly around about 1400, 13, 1400, we've got these manuscripts, 5,900 of them, and that does not include the writings of the church fathers, the versions in other languages, the lectionaries that have been given in, in, in other languages and during those times. All of these testify to the clarity and the exact wording that we have in the authorised version of the Bible. Most of you would be aware of, um, most of you won't be aware of this, what had happened here. Several scholars, two of them in particular, of the Revision Committee in 1881, chose 45 of the 5,900 roughly, chose 45 of them, of the most corrupt manuscripts ever seen, and through those 45, they worked with five, primarily five documents, in order to create a completely new Greek text. And that's the one that's behind the revised version and that's the one that's behind every single modern translation today with some small varieties. Five particular volumes were, were, were used. It was Codex Alexandrinus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Ephraimi and Codex Bezai. The codex simply means book. It's like a, it's like a book. You, you've got scrolls and you've got codexes. Right? They're, they're, they're the actual book. They're a, a, a leaf-turning book. Alexandrinus is identified as document A, manuscript A. Vaticanus is B. Sinaiticus is Aleph. Sinaiticus is interesting. It was, it was found and discovered by, um, by Tischendorf in the monastery on the peninsula of Sinai. And it was found in a rubbish bin. And that part of that rubbish bin, in, within that rubbish bin, they were just using it to actually start the fires in the Sinai Peninsula. The Sinaiticus manuscript has been edited by no less than 10 different editors over a period of 200 years. It, it is one of the most corrupt volumes that are out there. Ephraimi is noted as C and Bezai D. Probably the worst of them all is, is Bezai. These were unseal manuscripts. In other words, they were all written in capitals, right? not, not cursives. You've got cursives and you've got unseals. Unseals are all written in capitals. Every word, every letter is in capital. 
Each of these five differ tremendously one from another. They don't even agree with each other, right? There are a multitude of references made by Dean John Burgon in this book with regards to the differences. And only in the four Gospels, not the entire New Testament, just in the four Gospels, this is what he says. In the Gospels alone, Vaticanus is found to omit at least 2,877 words to add 536, to substitute 935, to transpose 2,098, and to modify 1,132 words. In all, 7,578 alterations. The corresponding figure for Aleph, that is the Sinaiticus manuscript, being this, severally, he says, uh, 3,455 omitted, 839 added, 1,114 substituted, 2,299 transposed, 1,265 modified, in all 8,978 alterations. And he says, be it remembered that the omissions, additions, substitutions, transpositions and modifications are by no means the same in both. This is differing from the received text, right? Differing from the received text. They're not the same in both. He says, in fact, it is easier to find two consecutive verses in which these two manuscripts differ one from the other than two consecutive verses in which they entirely agree. Is that not astounding? So different are these manuscripts, one from the other, that Dean John Burgon gives a really humorous example to show how we might expect them to be employed using one of the most famous phrases in Shakespeare, to be or not to be. Listen to what he says. He writes, Could ingenuity have devised severer satire than such a description of four professing transcripts of a book and that book, the everlasting gospel itself? What, we ask, would be thought of four such copies of Thucydides and Shakespeare? Imagine it gravely proposed by the aid of four such conflicting documents to readjust the text of the funeral oration of Pericles, or to re-edit Hamlet. Why, some of the poet's most familiar lines would cease to be recognisable. Alexandrinus, Toby or not Toby? That is the question. Vaticanus, Tob or not, is the question. Sinaiticus, to be a tub or not to be a tub? The question is. The question is that, or Codex Ephraimi. The question is, to beat or not to beat Toby? Codex Bezai, the only question is this, to beat that Toby or to be a tub? What he's doing is he's giving you an understanding of the distinctions between these texts and how much they actually differ, the one from the other. These are absolute corruptions. He speaks of these three, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus and Biza, and he says this, are three of the most scandalously corrupt copies extant and they exhibit the most shamefully mutilated texts which are anywhere to be met with. They've become, by whatever process, the depositories of the largest amount of fabricated readings, ancient blunders and intentional perversions of truth, which are discoverable in any known copies of the Word of God. He states in another portion saying, in the end, the revision of 1881, which underlies every single modern translation today, must come to be universally regarded as what is most certainly is the most astonishing 
as well as the most calamitous literary blunder of the age. This is what undergirds every single modern translation today. They are not Bibles. They are not the Word of God. You'd lucky to employ them as doorstops. They are not the Scriptures. And to have a lack of understanding and a lack of appreciation for these things is either one of two things. Ignorance of the history, which most people are. Ignorance of history or just a complete disregard to it. Because you see, the difference is you want to be the final authority. The ultimate difference is you want to be the final authority. Why is this intentional? This is intentional because these men now, what they have done is they've picked and chosen what words to put in and what words to leave out based on the so-called evidence of the manuscript. Oh, but it's in this manuscript, that word. And that is why 1 John 5, 7 doesn't appear in modern translations. The Trinity, the Godhead. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. This is deleted in modern translation. Matter of fact, they've actually done far, far worse. They haven't taken out the verse. It's the only verse that actually says that. It's the only verse that actually says the, um, these three that which are in heaven, the Father, the Word and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. They haven't deleted the whole verse out. You know what they've done? They've actually dismembered, they've deleted the verse, but they've dismembered verse 8 and they've separated verse 8 into the position of verse 7 and they've still left the number there. So unlike Acts chapter 8, verse 37, they haven't deleted the entire text, right? They've just deceitfully split it. And the same thing with 2 Timothy 3.16, that God was manifest in the flesh. They say he was manifest in the flesh, or who was manifest in the flesh, or he who was manifest in the flesh, which no document says. Well, can I ask you a question? Who wasn't? Who wasn't? Have you not appeared in a body? I don't know how I appear to you, but I'm pretty sure, you know, it's a body. Perceiver of truth. Last point and very short. To this end was I born and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Those who are of the truth should perceive the truth of a matter. They should be able to perceive the truth of a matter. There is a reason Paul warned Timothy of how the last days would look. Turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. I'm so sorry, I've kept you a bit longer than I wanted to. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I get excited about this text. And I, this, yeah, sorry. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 4, he says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Beloved, I want you to remember something, that this prophecy does not relate to those that are in the world. This prophecy relates to those in the church. This is what the state of the church is going to be looking like in those days. 
these days. Paul was speaking to Timothy, a pastor. These things were always in the world. They've always been in the world. He was referring to the state of the church in the last days. In chapter 4, he says this in verse 3, For the time will come will they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. They will not endure the truth. They will not stand for the truth. They will not want the truth. They will only want those things that they themselves are more than happy to hear. It's one of the reasons why these sort of churches are so slim because very few people want to hear from the Lord through his word. They want to have their ears scratched. That's what they desire. The dark ages of the Roman Catholic Church lasted for over a thousand years. Then light came into the world and we had rolling revivals that are recorded in many books to this day. The 20th century had seen very few, if any. Even the Jesus movement of the 1970s was considered more of a cultural revolution than it was an actual repentant heartache for the Lord Jesus Christ, an actual revival. Many simply saw it as that, just a cultural movement. When Jesus doubted that he would find faith on the earth when he returned in Luke 18.8, or when he spoke of a time that iniquity will so abound that the love of many will wax cold in Matthew 24.12, or Paul speaking of the utter rejection of God so great that it leads people to have a reprobate mind in Romans 1.28, the Roman Catholic Church hid the Bible in a foreign language for over a thousand years. Today, it is hidden in obscurity. It is hidden in obscurity. It was Luther's Bible in 1534 that brought light to the German peoples and began the Great Reformation. It was the Lieswild Bible in 1545 that brought light to the Dutch. It was the Rena Valera Bible in 1602 that brought light to the Spanish. It was the Diodati Bible in Italy in 1607 that brought light to the Italians. And it was the authorised version of the King James Bible that brought light to the English world. Little wonder the world came out of the dark during that time little wonder but now we're being compelled to go back into it you have however that same light not in that not in that you've got that same light here you've got that same light here read it just read it read it let the lord shine his light on you at least until he comes Maranatha, let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the simple truth that it's found therein. I can go on speaking about this book for days on end, dear Lord. I ask and pray to your Father, you bless us, bless our time. Bless this word to our lives. I pray to your Father, you would open our eyes that we may have understanding and knowledge and that we may witness the wonderful truth of the scriptures. We give you thanks and praise for your wonderful word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.